Okay. Good morning. So if my vo voice sounds a little funny today, that's because it is. So we'll, we'll kind of deal with that. Um, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we praise you. We glory in you. We glory in our salvation that we have through your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, for his sacrifice on our behalf. Father, we, we rejoice this uh, Pentecost Sunday, Lord, on, that you sent your Holy Spirit, Lord, to indwell your children. Father, that we might have the, the power needed to live according to, to your will in our lives, to grow in sanctification and holiness. Father, you gift us through that Holy Spirit um, in ways to serve you and to serve the church and, and so much more. And Lord, we praise you um, for the, that precious, precious gift. We praise you that we can come into your, your presence and we can, we can uh, worship you and, and hear your word and, and boldly pro, um, come before your throne in prayer. We thank you that we can do that in this nation. And um, Lord, we celebrate that uh, this Memorial Day weekend. Lord, we celebrate those who have literally given their life to secure those freedoms. Freedoms we enjoy because it's a gift from you. Father, may we, uh, may we acknowledge that. May we, um, may we be grateful for that. May we give you our prayers and praises of thanksgiving that you alone are worthy of and you alone are due. Father, be with us this morning as we hear your word, as we um, dive into this concluding session, section of Matthew 5. Father, will you give us insight through your Holy Spirit to understand clearly your word and to apply it to our lives. In your name we pray. Amen. So this morning um, we come to the end of a very important section of the Sermon on the Mount. And for the past five messages, as we've worked our way through the fifth chapter of Matthew, we've heard Jesus refute the teachings of the scribes and the Pharisees by accurately explaining the true meaning and intent of the law. And in each instance... This is a little awkward here. Hold on a minute. In each instance, he clearly presented their teaching with the phrase, you have heard that it was said. And then he contrasted it with the truth by authoritatively saying, but I say to you. And as I've emphasized in every message so far, and it's worth saying again this week, at no point, is Jesus contradicting or adding to the Word of God? Rather, he, and that's really important. That's why I've mentioned it every single message. He's not contradicting or adding to the Word of God. Rather, he's explaining to his audience, the disciples and to us, the true and original meaning of the text. Okay? So we began this journey um, through Jesus' uh, six refutations of the teaching of the scribes and the Pharisees all the way back in verse 20 where Jesus says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, Jesus is declaring that the righteousness that was taught and modeled by the Pharisees was not enough. 
And we learn elsewhere in Scripture that the righteousness that is required is an alien righteousness that comes from outside of ourselves. It comes only through faith alone in Jesus Christ for one's salvation. But within the context of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is explaining how a true disciple, one who is truly in Him, should live in obedience to the Old Testament teachings. His first example was the connection between murder and anger. Being only interested in the letter of the law, the Pharisees taught, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Verse 21. But Jesus taught that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Verse 22. The religious leaders thought only about the letter. But Jesus goes much, much deeper to the attitude and intentions of the heart. The same way, Jesus drew the connection between the sin of adultery and lust. It's not enough to simply not commit the act of adultery. Jesus says that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Verse 28. Marriage was seen as no more than a social construct, contract, that could be severed as long as a certificate of divorce was given. Yet Jesus says, but I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Verse 32. The scribes and the Pharisees did all kinds of intellectual gymnastics when it came to oaths. Some were binding, some were not. Depended on what you took the oath by, heaven, the earth, Jerusalem, etc. But Jesus said not to take an oath at all. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Verse 37, speak truth. And rather than appeasing our natural inclination towards retaliation an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth, and demanding our rights, Jesus taught us not to resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Verse 39. So this morning, we come to the sixth and the final example. And it may be the most countercultural example of all. Loving your enemies. If you haven't already, uh, turn with me to Matthew 5, and I'll be reading um, beginning in verse 43 through the end of the chapter. Jesus said, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The 
You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Verse 43. And before we dig into the text, I want to make something very, very clear um, before we begin. The teaching, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, cannot be found in the Old Testament. It doesn't exist, okay? And we'll dig into why and how the Pharisees, the scribes, may have come to that understanding, but it's crucial for us to know that this teaching is a perversion of Scripture, and cannot be found in the text, okay? So in this way, this example differs a little bit from the others. In all the other cases, the scribes and the Pharisees looked only at the letter of the command while Jesus went deeper to the intent of the heart. Some cases, the leaders accurately quoted the Old Testament, but misapplied the law, right? Um, In this case, the teaching of the scribes and the Pharisees cannot be found. And when Jesus says, but I say to you, He's not only refuting the application of their teaching, but in this case, he's refuting the teaching on its face, okay? So what what probably is at the root of this interpretation, though, where did it come from um, for the scribes and the Pharisees is the question, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? They believe that the term neighbor referred only to the Jews. Jews were taught to love the Jews, And everyone else fell outside of that category. Gentiles were considered dogs and unclean. Because of that, they were to be hated. They were considered to be the enemy. And of course, Jesus clearly teaches against that mindset when he tells the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke 10, 29-37. It's the Samaritan, a a member of a, a different hated people group, who provides aid to an injured man when others walk by. Jesus brings home his point in verses 36 and 37 when he, when he asks, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the person that Jesus is speaking with, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Right? The great commandment, is you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, Matthew 22, 37. And a second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, verse 39. And that commandment, to love your neighbor as yourself, is taken, it quoted from Leviticus 19, 18, which says, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So as a Pharisee, I could look at that verse and I could say, see, it says right there, not to bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. Love your neighbor, hate your enemies, case closed. Right? The problem is you never want to read Scripture alone outside of its context. You never want to do that. Just a couple verses later, just a couple verses, verses 33 and 34, the command is given. When a stranger sojourns with you in the land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. For you are strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. 
Leviticus 19, 33 to 34. The same command, the same command to love him as yourself is given in relation to your neighbor, to the stranger, and to the sojourner without distinction. Without distinction. God's word is consistent and true. Another possibility for the scribes and the Pharisees' interpretation might be some of God's commands and acts of judgment in history that may have led them to that conclusion. For example, when the Jews entered the promised land, they were commanded to exterminate the Canaanites, literally, to literally blot out their memory. The Amorites, the Moabites, the Midianites were not to be treated with kindness. That was a command from God. Another example could be the uh, imprecatory psalms, where the psalmist literally calls down curses upon his enemies. For example, Psalm 69 reads, Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see, and make their loins tremble continually. Pour out your indignation. That's key, your indignation. Um, Pour out your indignation upon them and let your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be a desolation. Let no one dwell in their tents. Uh, Psalm 69, 23 to 25. That seems pretty harsh. Seems pretty harsh. Hard to read that without me thinking, God wants me to hate his enemies. But I think the best way to understand both the acts of God in history and the imprecatory psalms is that they are judicial, not personal. Okay? They're judicial, not personal. At no point does God say or command that we are to hate our enemies. At no point. In fact, God's Word, both Old Testament and New, are clear that we are to love our enemies. Yet God's acts in history, as well as the imprecatory psalms, are an act of God's justice. God's justice. God shows mercy and patience to all people. And as, we, as we'll see in a few verses, He makes the sun rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the just and on, on the unjust. But ultimately, God will judge those who are in rebellion to Him. As for you, love your enemies. Justice belongs to the Lord. So to the teaching of the scribes and the Pharisees, Jesus responds with the statement, beginning in verse 44, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Verse uh, 44. Now, can you imagine a more countercultural statement than that? Love your enemies. How do you do that? How do you do that? Who are your enemies? Seriously, take a moment. Who are your enemies? Identify them. Who are they? What have they done? Maybe you're thinking of a a former friend that has harmed you in some way. How have they sinned against you? Maybe it's a group of people For the Jews, it was anyone who was a non-Jew. Is there some kind of group that you consider to be your enemy? 
Maybe it's those that we know who are enemies of God. They hold a very different worldview and ideology which stands in opposition to both God's law and character. Jeff came up and shared about this initiative that's going on. Are they the enemy? Are they the enemy? Maybe it's a different political party, religious group, or denomination. Maybe it's a foreign nation. Who is the enemy? Lock it in for a moment, okay? We know that we have them. We know that we have enemies. The very fact that Jesus says, love your enemy, assumes that you do, right? How then, how then do we extend self-sacrificial agape love, which by the way is the word that's used there, to those that we consider to be our enemies, or maybe even enemies of God. You know, a number of years ago, I visited a small town in southwest Indiana, and I met with a female pastor. I know that's problematic, but I was there to promote the ministry, right? And was often the case in my meetings back then, our conversation went far beyond my primary purpose for being there. And she shared with me, I have no idea how we got onto this, but she shared with me what had happened to her daughter who had been murdered several years before. The man who committed the act was arrested and stood trial. And after the testimony, the verdict, and the sentencing, this woman had the opportunity to address the man who murdered her daughter and had taken so much away from her. She had the opportunity to stand before a man who was the very definition of the enemy. And she could have said anything to him. She could have told him that she hoped he would rot in jail and burn in hell. Yet she chose a very different path. She chose rather to offer him grace. She chose to forgive him. She chose to offer him agape love. Not because of anything that he had done. Not because he had repented of his act. But because he was one who was created in the image of God and Jesus commanded her to love her enemies. That was it. I don't know the rest of the story. But I do know that that man did come to faith through her act of love and compassion. I do know, as of about 10 years ago, when she told me the story, she still kept in touch with him in prison. See, God will use our witness of love to soften even the most callous of hearts. And he does that in order to draw his people to himself. See, Jesus not only said to love your enemies, but he added that we're also to pray for those who persecute you. Now, no one modeled that better than Jesus himself. When he said from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Luke 23, 34. Jesus was betrayed, arrested, beaten, whipped, mocked, had a crown of thorns put on his head, was forced to carry his cross to Calvary where he was nailed to a tree and crucified. No one 
in all of history endured the, endured the persecution that Jesus endured. Yet, he prayed for those who persecuted him. He prayed for his enemies. In the same way, the martyr Stephen shouted out with his final breath as he was stoned, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Acts 70, verse 60. Why do we do that? Why do we do that? Why are we to to love our enemies and and pray for those who persecute us? Jesus goes on. He says in verse 45a, he says, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. See, loving enemies and praying for those who persecute you does not make you a child of God. That happens only through rebirth, saving faith, being adopted into his family as one of his own. That said, a true child of God, the family for a true child of God, the family resemblance should be unmistakable. Right? Our goal through our sanctification is to be conformed in an ever-increasing way into His image and likeness, Romans 8.29. And Jesus said, by this, all people will know you're my disciples if you have love for one another, John 13.35. So the love that we show for both our neighbor and our enemies reflects the true character and nature of God. Praying for the good and the the, uh, and the welfare of our persecutors demonstrates the heart of God. And it shows us as his child. So how does God interact with man? Both his friends and his enemies alike. How does God do, that, do it? Verse 45 continues. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good. And sends rain on the just and on the unjust. This is called common grace. Common grace. Common grace is the grace of God by which he gives people innumerable blessings that are not a part of salvation. Okay? Not a part of salvation. But something that is held in common for all people. Okay? For all people. Um, It's not just restricted to the children of God. And this this is different from his saving grace that is given toward salvation. The sun rises each and every day, and it shines upon both the evil and the good in equal measure. He sends his rain on both the just and the unjust, giving life and nourishment to crops. He upholds the universe by the word of his powers, his power, Hebrews 1 3. And that common grace that God gives, shows forth His love and care for all that He has made. And His love is clearly seen through the innumerable gifts that He's bestowed upon those who are created in His image, without distinction. So as sons and daughters of God, we should exhibit the family resemblance through how we love others, both friends and enemies. And by this, we confirm that we are indeed children of God. Jesus continues to refute the teachings of the scribes and the Pharisees 
by basically asking this question. If you love your neighbor and you hate your enemy, how are you any different than the world? Let that sink in. If you love your neighbor and hate your enemy, how are you any different from the world? If we hear this clear command by Jesus, and it couldn't be clearer, right? We hear this clear command of Jesus and we shrink back because it's too difficult or it's too countercultural or because surely he couldn't have met my specific situation. Then how are we any different from the world? Jesus says, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? Verse 46. Um, Very easy to love those who love you first. When someone goes out of their way to show kindness or affection, it's very easy to reciprocate. We give out of the abundance of what we have received. We feel as if our love is appreciated, accepted, and mutual. I can do that. I can feel good about that. But how does that make me any different from the world? Doesn't every single person on the planet do that? Doesn't every person on the planet desire to be loved and accepted? And when that love is received, in most cases, it's also given. Even the most vile sinner will act in this way. Jesus says, do not even the tax collectors do the same? See, he provides the the example of tax collectors because of how they were viewed by the Jews. The tax collectors were Israelites who were hired by the Roman authorities to tax other Jews for personal profit. They were seen as disloyal. They often collected more than the legal tax and extorted their own countrymen. And because of this, they were despised and hated by the people. They became a symbol, literally. They became a symbol for the very worst kind of sinner. In fact, throughout, um, there are countless examples throughout the Gospels where the word pairing, tax collectors and sinners, appear together as synonyms, right? In effect, Jesus is saying this. Look at that tax collector. Look at that tax collector. You believe him to be the worst of the worst. Yet even even he loves those who loves him. How are you any different? Should you be rewarded for doing exactly what the tax collector does? Jesus goes on in verse 47, saying, And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? See, a greeting is an expression of goodwill. In that way, it mirrors love. It's easy for us to to do for those that we consider friends or brothers. In fact, we welcome the opportunity. It's it's easy for us to extend a greeting to someone who we perceive to be like us or with us. But what about the enemy? What about the enemy? How do you handle that situation? 
What is the attitude of your heart? So I want you to picture again in your mind that same enemy that I had you picture earlier, okay? Again, perhaps it's a particular person who's harmed you or a group of people. Maybe it's someone who holds a very different worldview and you consider them even to be an enemy of God. Maybe it's someone from another political party, religious group, whatever, whoever that person is. I want you to picture them walking towards you from a distance on a sidewalk. What do you do? What do you do? See, some of us might cross the street. Okay? I don't want to talk to him. I don't want to look him in the eye. I certainly don't want to extend a greeting to him. I want to avoid him at all costs. Some of us will cross the street. Some of us might duck down an alley. All right? Maybe she didn't see me. I hope she didn't see me. Okay? Some of us might defiantly walk past them on the street. We won't make eye contact. We won't acknowledge their existence. That'll show them. That'll show them. But Jesus says that even the Gentiles, those who were considered as dogs by the Jews, greet one another. We're called to so much more. We're called to so much more. Those who are sons of their Father in heaven are called to a much higher standard. Jesus says, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Verse 44. And loving your enemies is a choice. It's a choice. It's something that doesn't come naturally. It's difficult. It's costly. But the life of a disciple is meant to be different, special, and extraordinary. It isn't supposed to look like the world. Rather, it should mirror the character, nature, and the love of God who makes His sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. And just as He pours out His blessings on both the good and the evil, we're called to actively love, actively love, both our neighbors and our enemies. And not only are we called to love them in truth, but we're also called to pray for them. Pray for their well-being. Pray for God's blessings upon them. And most of all, genuinely pray for their salvation. That God, through His Holy Spirit, would draw them to Himself in faith and repentance. And that they would be added, along with you, to the family of God. Pray that your, your enemy becomes a brother or sister in Christ. Again, the, the, the prayer, and I haven't looked at the journal yet, but, um, or the prayer guide yet, but the, the prayers that uh, Jeff called us to earlier. Do we want to pray for the abolishment of abortion? Absolutely we do. Do we want to pray that this initiative fails? Absolutely we do. But the top of the list would be that they would know Jesus. Amen. All right? That's number one. That's how you pray for the enemy. If you can pray that prayer... If you can pray that prayer as an outflow of your genuine love for your enemy, rather, and hear this, rather than as a condition for it, 
Right, let me say that again. If you can pray that prayer as an outflow of your genuine love for your enemy rather than a condition for it, then you've begun to show yourself as a true son of the Father who is in heaven. Our sonship is manifested through our love for others, friends and enemies alike. We love as the Father loves. And by doing so, we give testimony to the fact that we are indeed children of God. In fact, one who is outside of the family of God is incapable of loving one's enemies in the way that Jesus commands us to love. You can't do that apart from the Holy Spirit within you. Chapter ends in verse 48, where Jesus says, You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. In one sense, this verse serves as the conclusion to Jesus' teaching on loving your enemies. God's unconditional love, which he pours out through his common grace, is the goal of everyone who would follow him. We are to love as he loves. In another sense, and I think even more so, this verse serves as the conclusion to the entire section on Jesus' teaching against the scribes and the Pharisees. All of the Old Testament law and the teaching of the prophets find their perfect fulfillment in the perfection of the Father. Okay, they're fulfilled in Jesus Christ who achieves the Father's goal, right? Um, the standard that God demands of His people is His own perfect standard. Right? And as children of God, we are to obediently pursue His perfection with everything we are as the Holy Spirit enables. Jesus sets, in His words, Jesus sets an unattainable standard. Yet, it is a standard that's necessitated by God's nature and character. Right? To set a different standard this is important, to set a different standard would undermine God's own perfection. Perfection is is required. Praise God that the righteousness required in order to achieve God's standards comes not through us, but by one who has met the standard for us. Jesus Christ fulfilled the requirements of God's law died on the cross to atone for our sins, and through faith in Him, we're declared justified and righteous before a holy God. For our sake, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 So whether we're talking about anger, lust, marriage, truth, retaliation, or loving our enemies, our goal should be to pursue the perfection of God's character, nature, and His laws. We're we're not merely to obey the letter of, of God's commands as the Pharisees sought to do, but we should joyfully obey the heart, the intent, and the meaning of God's law. And if we do so, then we will grow in our sanctification, and we will conform more and more to the image and the likeness of God. The word perfect refers to completeness and maturity. 
We are to be perfect in the sense that our satisfaction and our complete trust is in God. As a child of God, we are to resemble our Heavenly Father. We are to be like Him in His character, His actions, and in His moral perfection. We're to strive towards the goal. Jesus' words, you therefore must be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect, is not given as a suggestion or a recommendation. They're given as a command. They're given as a command. You must be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. The Apostle Paul made that his life mission. He strived with everything he had to reach the goal. Like a runner, running a race, he threw off every hindrance and he pushed forward towards the prize. Not that I've already obtained obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. Philippians 3, 12-13. Earlier in the message, beginning, I said that we began this journey way back in verse 20. When Jesus said, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That greater righteousness, that righteousness that exceeds, is found here at the conclusion in verse 48. You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. It's found first in the perfection of the Father. Okay? He was the very definition of perfection in his nature, his character, and his acts. It's seen secondly in the perfection of God's children who are first declared declared righteous through faith in Jesus Christ alone and then brought into perfect righteousness and maturity through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit completed in glory. Heavenly Father, may you work that in each and every one of us. May your love be exhibited in us and through us to our friends, and to our enemies. May the family resemblance be clearly seen in us. May the world know without a doubt that we are children of our Father who is in heaven. May you work your perfection in us, and may you receive all the glory. Amen. Please rise for the benediction. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless or perfect before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord Be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.
Go in his peace.